cast your eyes over the cover page of our, of our Sunday bulletin and those three words printed along the bottom on the cover page. Worship, edification, evangelism. And we always have those words printed on the front of our bulletin, New City, because together, together, those three things are the proper ends of a local congregation's life, all of which serve the glory of God. So how easy is that? I just distilled all of church life to three things, three hooks on which to hang our membership hats. And, and not just New City, but every church and every place and every time. And I would challenge you to think, well, actually try to think of a, an aspect of church life, no matter the context, that somehow falls outside of those three ends. Worship to the glory of God. Edification to the glory of God. Evangelism to the glory of God. And in light of our brother Chris worshiping with us today, uh, a man who is seeking to raise support from a number of churches to serve China as a missionary, including, Lord willing, New City. In light of this, our sermon today is on the topic of evangelism and missions. And the biblical text we're considering is the Great Commission text of Matthew 28. And you'll see a, a typo in the title in your bulletin. It's not Great Commissions, plural. It's just the one. I'm not trying to do something cute with that. So, and in your outline, you'll find just a number of definitions that will help get us started. Uh, first and foremost, the gospel. Now, we, we sing and we talk about and we pray about the gospel all the time, a lot at New City Baptist Church. What is it? Well, here it is. The gospel, the good news announcement of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. And in consequence, will accomplish in the new heaven and new earth. What's evangelism? Evangelism is proclaiming the gospel, that good news, with the intent to persuade, to convert. Please note that not just any aim will do. There is a very specific bullseye to our aim to persuade people to convert, to become followers of Jesus Christ. Paul says, the Apostle Paul, that we're to persuade others to follow Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.11 Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. And that word persuade is helpful. I think it guards us from error. Uh, We persuade people. We don't manipulate people. Conversion comes from true, conscious, genuine faith in Jesus Christ. We persuade but we're not the ones who bring about repentance and conversion, right? That's, that's true conversion is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. That then leads us to, in your bulletin, missions. Missions is the unique, deliberate gospel mission of the church to make disciples of all the nations. It's evangelism, so it's, it's gospel proclamation with the intent to persuade, to convert people that takes the gospel across ethnic, linguistic, and geographic boundaries that gathers churches and teaches them to obey everything Jesus commanded. And what's a church? A local church is a mutually affirming group of new covenant members and kingdom citizens. We just did that this morning. Mutually affirming, identified by regularly gathering together in Jesus' name through preaching the gospel and celebrating the ordinances. 
All right, then. What's a missionary? What is our brother Chris? A missionary is someone identified and sent out by local churches to make the gospel known and to gather, serve, and strengthen local churches across ethnic, linguistic, and geographic divides. So, I mean, that's a lot, right? But with all of that now in our back pocket, you just keep referring to that, that handout throughout the service, we come now to our sermon text this morning, Matthew 28, 18, page 1000 in our church Bibles. This is the resurrected Jesus speaking. Then Jesus came to them, his disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Great Commission. We've all heard it. We all believe it. And we all agree it needs to be done. Uh, It is a commission. It's an instruction. It's a command. It's a duty given to the church by the Lord Jesus. Make disciples of all nations. Where Christians don't agree, however, is the how. The how of this. What's the best way of going about this? The most biblically faithful way as the local church goes global of reaching the lost of all the nations with the good news of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. Well, let's get into this by asking first a couple of questions. And because the answers, I think, are going to tell us precisely where we're going here. Uh, Here's the question. How do we fulfill the Great Commission, New City? The Great Commission is normally fulfilled through healthy local churches helping to plant other healthy local churches. Who's responsible, then, to fulfill the Great Commission? All Christians, certainly. But the Great Commission is to be fulfilled not merely, merely through individual Christians, but through local churches sending people to preach the gospel with the goal, the goal of establishing, then, local churches wherever they go. This means local churches are responsible then to raise up, send out, and support missionaries. Missionaries whose goal is not merely to see individuals come to faith in Jesus Christ, but to see local churches established in regions where there are none. Now, I'm I'm asserting an awful lot there, aren't I? Uh, I'm saying all kinds of stuff about the church and missions and evangelism and the gospel and church planting. And and I am going to back it up with scripture. But you should know that I did a whole lot more explaining and backing backing things up and putting, I think, practical meat on bones over the course of four months as we looked at missions and evangelism in our adult Sunday school class back in uh, 2019. Uh, This sermon is a bit of a summary of what we learned in those classes, Uh, sort of the eight course meal is on those podcasts, so you can go listen to that too. Uh, But beloved, here is the earnest prayer of your elders. And this is the prayer for the sermon this morning and introducing to you Chris uh, to the congregation, introducing him to the congregation today. New City Baptist Church, our prayer is that New City Baptist Church would be a great commission church. 
that we be enraptured with the grand goal of the Great Commission. That's our prayer. And the grand goal of the Great Commission is the glory of God in the local church. Ask yourself, if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God, then how do we see Jesus today? Because Jesus isn't here. And he isn't to be worshipped through physical icons or images. We have no account of Jesus teaching his disciples to draw or to sketch or to sculpt, right? Uh, we have the books that his apostle wrote, his apostles, but we have no images of Jesus that, you know, we have nothing that we're supposed to be adoring in that sense. Instead, Jesus has created a people for his very own through the preached word. It's in the church we discover the blessing of the visibility of the character of God. It's in the church we see what God is truly like. Yes, we will see him ultimately when we see him face to face on the last day. But now, right now, in the local church, all the nations of the world witness the display of the glory of God's goodness and God's love. And and so bring praise to God because Jesus identifies himself with local churches. I mean, now we have groups all over the place having self-identification, identify with this, identify with that. Jesus identifies himself with local churches. The church is his body. He is her head. His power is on display in the churches. Our churches reflect his wisdom. Our churches make the gospel visible. The church is where Jesus' kingdom authority is exercised. The local church is where disciples are made and baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's in the church where Christians are taught to obey everything Christ commanded. And for these glorious ends, until he returns, Christ has promised us his spirit and his authority. He's given us the keys, as Alex was speaking of earlier. Brothers and sisters, this is what God wants us to see in his word today. It may be a new idea to some, a new concept, but it's gloriously, gloriously true. Church planting is the normal business of the local church. The Great Commission is normally fulfilled through church planting. Churches are God's evangelism plan. So look at your point number one in your bulletin. And it's important we understand this from the outset because it impacts everything that follows. Point number one, the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel is not something tacked on to the end of the book. It's part of a sustained theme. The entire Gospel of Matthew, from chapter 1, verse 1, to these last three verses in chapter 28, it's all of it is linked. So be careful. What we don't want is to read this gospel uh, with all of its high theology of Jesus, its high Christology, all of its theology, its view of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, I have come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. I mean, that's weighty stuff, right? All of Jesus' parable teachings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection for sin, and dump all of that now into one file in our mind. That's all connected. That's all of a piece. But then, as we come to these last three verses, 
we think God's telling us, oh, uh, and, and by the way, Christian, here's your part now. Here's your job. Get on with the folks. Start evangelizing. That's a very common misconception. No, our evangelistic faithfulness, beloved, the Great Commission itself, this unique, deliberate gospel mission of the church to make disciples of all the nations, of taking the gospel across ethnic, linguistic, and geographic boundaries, of gathering churches and teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded, it's also, it's also bound up with the coming of Jesus, the mission, mission of Jesus, and the teaching of Jesus. The Great Commission in Matthew isn't something tacked on to the end of the book. It's part of a sustained theme. I want to prove that to you. We need to see this. How does Matthew's gospel begin? Matthew 1, 1. Maybe not the most kind of heart-pounding way to start a, a, a book that it, for our cultural perspective, but Matthew 1, 1. This is the genealogy oh, of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then a big list of so-and-so begets so-and-so, right? And what was the promise God initially gave given by God to Abraham 2,000 years before he was born, before Jesus was born. Through your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's right there in one one. There's a son of Abraham, right? That means Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be a descendant of Abraham and all the nations of the earth, including Gentiles, will be blessed through him which is a theme the Apostle Paul develops constantly in his letters, isn't it? And it's a theme Matthew develops in his genealogy in chapter 1. This is how Matthew begins his theological biography of Jesus Christ. He mentions four women in Jesus' ancestry, which was an unheard of thing to do, uh, unheard of in those days. I mean, what a complete waste of time that would be, right? Men are the one who count. And these four women are quite the motley crew, too. One of them is Ruth. She's a Moabite, a Gentile, someone whose ancestors were conceived through father-daughter incest. So that's in Jesus' pedigree. And according to the law of Moses, no descendant of a Moabite to the 10th generation could join the Jewish community. But just three generations from Ruth, we have King David, from whose dynasty Jesus himself arises. Matthew also mentions Bathsheba, whose husband is Uriah the Hittite, not Uriah the Jew. Uriah the Hittite, he's quite clearly a Gentile. And then we have Matthew 8.11, where the Lord Jesus says these words, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, so Gentile lands, and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So this Mix of the people of God will include both Jew and Gentile. Earlier, John the Baptist said the same thing. Chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you, that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. 
In other words, the figure of Abraham has become in the teaching of John the Baptist, in the teaching of Jesus, in the teaching of Paul, in the teaching of the New Testament, and and built into the very structure of Matthew's gospel. The figure of Abraham has become a sign that the good news of what God accomplishes in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin is not just for the old covenant community of Israel, but through this one seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Which is why Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14, the gospel of the kingdom must be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. In other words, in Matthew's gospel, the Great Commission isn't some command that's tacked on for the church. Here's your part now, church. Here's your job now, Christian. Start evangelizing. That's not how it works. There's a biblical theology of mission to work to, at work here that's linked to the rest of the Bible, the rest of the book of Matthew, to the mission of Jesus, and all the eternal purposes of God. And your evangelistic faithfulness, Christian, as an individual in the patch to which God has called you, that's not an optional extra. We're going to be really zeroing in on the church's role with this today, but it also applies to individuals. You proclaiming the gospel at work with the intention to convert, the intention to convert your boss, the intention to convert the man or woman who's in maybe the cubicle next to you. It's your Christian duty. You talking to your family and your neighbors about Jesus with the intention to persuade them to believe. That's bound up with the whole coming and mission and teaching of Jesus Christ. It's an integral part of what it means to be a faithful Christian. And it's an integral part of what it means to be a faithful church. This unique, deliberate mission to make disciples of all nations, taking the gospel across those ethnic, linguistic boundaries, gathering churches, and teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. So, as we understand that, with that sort of biblical, theological foundation now established, let's start working through our passage today. As we see in the sermon outline, the second thing we need to note is this. The Great Commission is bound up with the authority of Jesus. So verse 18. Then Jesus, this is the resurrected Jesus, came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All right, let's draw out some implications then. From implications from Jesus' divine authority over heaven and earth and how that relates to the Great Commission as it relates to our evangelism. Brothers and sisters, this authority builds confidence. It builds confidence. At least it certainly should. Uh, By God's grace, uh, my wife Jill and I have been married now uh, for going on 11 years. And one of the things that strikes me now when I watch movies about people dating or I hear your stories from the singles out there of dating now in the modern world, uh, it's, the thing that strikes me is how glad I am those days are over for me. Man, I'm so thankful I never again have to deal with the stress of chatting up a woman to go on a date. I mean, women have their own stressors I wouldn't thank you for when it comes to the dating world and relationships, but, but men, brothers... 
You know how it is when we first see a woman from across the room that we're attracted to. What's going through our mind? We're thinking, okay, how do I go up and say hi and start a conversation with this gorgeous creature without looking like a total idiot, but not sounding creepy or desperate or overbearing and and being James Bond cool and confident all the while? Ladies, I'll let you know a secret. Sometimes we prepare our conversation ahead of time in our mind. It's true. You know, the night that I first met Jill, I was in a group setting. And for chivalrous reasons I'm not going to get into here, I was not able to ask Jill out on a date personally in that moment, which I wanted to do. There, there was another lady in my company who would have been upset, poor thing. So <laughs> when the night was over, I rushed home from the restaurant and I, I labored for an hour getting a six-line private Facebook message just right, just perfect, asking Jill out on a date. I birthed that thing. It was like I was writing Moby Dick. All right? I'm going to read it to you right now. December 12th, 2010, 1.30 a.m. All right? Hi, Jill. And that sounds so... Hi, Jill. I went over that like a hundred times. Hello. Hi, Jill. It was really nice seeing you this evening. I just wish we had more opportunity to talk. Fate was against me in our seating arrangements. Smiley face. You seem like a really nice person, and I'd love to take you out for drinks and a movie some evening. Let me know if you'd be interested in meeting up. Uh, I hope this doesn't sound too forward. I would ask you in person the next time you meet, but I can't be sure when or where that will be. So I tracked you down on Facebook. Hope to hear from you soon. John. Send. And the sweat, sweat was pouring off me. Again, that took an hour to write that. And when I called Jill the next day to arrange the details of our date, like a psychopath, I actually had some of the some point form topics, like just some conversation points I could get quickly reference, just lighthearted banter, you know, just just to be safe. But I needn't have worried because Jill, you talked enough for both of us. So. <laughs> uh, but why do we do stuff like that for dating relationships? Going in prepared, having a script but not when it comes to talking about Jesus Christ. There you are, you're getting coffee in the office on a Monday morning, and your work colleague asks, how was your weekend? And you're thinking, I I need to say more than, oh, really nice, I went for for a hike along the Bruce Trail, the fall leaves, the colors were just excellent, how was your weekend? You want to say, it was good. Uh, Saturday, I went for a hike along the Bruce Trail, and on Sunday, my wife and I were members at a, at a, of a local church that meets downtown. Are you religious at all? Do you, uh, do you attend religious services? Oh, no, no, no. I, I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. I don't really go in for the whole organized religion thing. Oh, you should come by our church sometime. Our pastor is preaching through a sermon series on the Gospel of John. That's one of the four theological biographies of Jesus we have in the Bible. We have a time of Q&A after the service. And actually, this week, it's potluck Sunday. You should come. All right? That's it. You know, now, your, your heart may be racing as you say all of that, and your brain is like a squirrel in traffic, but nothing there, nothing there sounds too fundamentalist crazy, right? It's just polite and nice. That's a, a pre-evangelism conversation starter that the Lord can take in many, many good directions. Christian, we can get our foot in the door a hundred different ways, but we all need to say something to get the ball rolling. Don't let years pass by not having proclaimed the gospel to your work colleagues your neighbors your families have confidence 
Have confidence. What does the Bible say? It says that Jesus is on his throne and universal authority has been granted to him by his father. All authority. Jesus has authority over Satan and demons, over all the angels, good and evil, over the natural universe, laws and forces, stars, galaxies, planets, black holes. Jesus has authority over all molecular and atomic reality, atoms, electrons, protons, neutrons, subatomic particles, genetic structures, DNA, chromosomes. Jesus has authority over all plants, over all animal life, big and small, whales and redwoods, giant squid, giant oaks, bacteria, viruses, parasites, germs. Jesus has authority over all the parts and functions of the human body. Every beat of your heart, every breath you draw, every electrical jump across 100 trillion synapses in your brain. Jesus has authority over all nations, over all governments. Jesus has authority over the church and over every soul and every moment of every life that has been or ever will be. There is nothing in heaven or on earth over which Jesus does not have authority, that he does not have the right and the power to do with as he pleases. Hear that again. The right and the power. The scope and the magnitude of Jesus Christ is infinite. Because Jesus is God. He is King. He is Lord. So you can have confidence, Christian, in taking ten seconds to open up your mouth at work, to talk about Jesus to your boss. You can proclaim what God has accomplished in his son's death and resurrection with confidence as you proclaim the gospel with the intent to persuade your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister. Trying to persuade them to convert. Jesus says, all authority is given to me. That's the incentive. That's the courage. That's the strength. Therefore, go. In the second place, B, this authority is without geographical limit. He says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. And as we support the work of church planting, let's say, in northern India or in China, or as we evangelize back home in the Philippines or in the DR or in the UK, We do so confident in the power of God to save us. His authority is without geographical limit. C, this authority presupposes that Christ is worthy. He is worthy to be worshipped by all. Jesus says, all authority is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Go and make Jesus followers of all nations. What's presupposed here is that Jesus has the right to be acknowledged as Lord. He has that right. Uh, In Toronto and in Beijing, he's to be worshipped by all because, as we saw two weeks ago, that ultimately leads to the claim of Philippians chapter 2. Let me read this. Therefore, God exalted him, exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friend, are you worried about the state of the world? 
Are you worried about what's happening in the schools or in the courts? Are you worried about what's happening with injustice, crime, poverty, corruption, war, the celebration of infanticide, racism, all the sins of man against man, the fallout of human rebellion against our Creator God? You should know this. The eternal Son, Jesus Christ, even now mediates all of His Father's sovereignty in heaven and on earth. All of it. A sparrow does not fall to the earth without Jesus Christ's divine sanction. And one day, justice is going to be done. It's going to be seen to be done. Christ Jesus, the God-man, will judge the world in righteousness. And as such, universal homage must be paid to him, and it will be paid to him. Every, every knee will bow before Jesus. Every court, every dictator, every politician, every person in this room. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. When will that day be? When will that time come when every person bows the knee to Jesus Christ and declares that he is God and he has the right to rule? Well, the church does it right now. But on the last day, when Jesus judges the world, every knee, even the knees of the most hardened sinners, the most wicked of demons, even Satan himself, will be irresistibly compelled to this act of submission. On that day, no one, no one will be able to resist Jesus' mighty power. His enemies will be made his footstool. And all who have raged against Jesus and his kingly rule will be put to shame. What's presupposed in the Great Commission is Jesus' right to be acknowledged as Lord. That Jesus is worthy to be worshipped by all. Therefore, verse 19, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus by his Father, and because he is in sovereign control, verse 19, therefore, go and make disciples. And that is the imperative verb in the sentence. That's the command of main emphasis in the Great Commission. Make Jesus followers of all nations. But what happens after we go and proclaim the gospel to them and by God's enabling grace they believe? What happens immediately after they become disciples of Jesus Christ? Do we say, God be with you, friend, and then sort of release them back into the wild with a Bible and a prayer? Do we enroll them in a Christian campus ministry? Do we sign them up with a group of believers living together in an apartment complex in a poor part of the city? No. If they wish, those things might happen later. But first, those new Jesus followers are added to a body of believers. They're added through baptism to the local church. They're baptized by a local church in the name of the Holy Trinity. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the Christian's first act of obedience. Baptism. 
That's the new Christian's initiation into the church. A formerly constituted group of believers who have heard their understanding of the gospel and how the Lord saved them. And the local church says to them, we recognize your discipleship to Jesus Christ as being valid. You look like a Christian to us. So we publicly affirm and acknowledge you before the nations as belonging to Jesus Christ by baptizing you. And we extend to you the oversight of our fellowship and our love. And then they're taught to obey everything else Jesus commands. But the first thing he commands is baptism. Then everything else. How does that happen? Who does that? I mean, should, should we maybe outsource that to a very well-intentioned parachurch ministry? God forbid. It, it happens to the local church. It happens through the means of the local church's corporate worship, reading the word, preaching the word, praying the word, singing the word, seeing the word in the ordinances, and through the membership's loving, mutual edification and discipleship and following the teaching and example of the elders. That's how it happens. Look at your big picture in your bulletin. Christ's command was to make disciples who would become churches. The goal of missions is not to evangelize all peoples, but to make disciples, Jesus followers, who observe all that Christ commanded, baptizing them in the name of the triune God. The former evangelism can be accomplished rapidly through individuals, whereas the latter, making Jesus followers, takes time and it requires community. Therefore, fulfilling the Great Commission necessitates church planting. The Great Commission is normally fulfilled through healthy local churches helping to plant other healthy local churches. New City, hear that. God means to fulfill the Great Commission through local churches. The church is God's plan for evangelism, discipleship, and the Great Commission. How do the apostles, how did the apostles in the churches of the New Testament obey the Great Commission? I mean, if you're struggling, if you're doubting about anything I'm saying here, just answer that question. How did the apostles in the churches of the New Testament obey what Jesus says here? By gathering Christians into churches. The church is God's plan for evangelism, discipleship, and the Great Commission. Now, let me add quickly some more ecclesiological meat to those bones, okay? Number three, the Great Commission is normally fulfilled through healthy local churches helping to plant other healthy local churches. Now, by saying that, just point number three, if you look at that, that is very countercultural in evangelicalism. That's a countercultural thing to say, to believe. I'd wager Jesus' Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel is most often coupled with an appeal from pastors, from the pulpit, whatever, for individual Christians to consider their calling to go into the world to be missionaries. I've heard that dozens of times. Uh, And while it's certainly a text that every follower of Christ ought to meditate upon and apply, I would argue that a primarily individualistic application of this command is is wrong-headed. It's not correct. Christ's command was given to the church. According to verse 16, it was the 11 disciples who were the original hearers of the command. But the apostles were more than individuals seeking to privately obey Jesus' teachings. These men stood as founders and leaders of the church that would be established and multiplied through their testimony and through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And it was understood that every member of the church would be taught to obey everything that the Lord commanded, right? Every member, including, including Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations. And this command was given to all members of the church, not just men and women who are already sort of predisposed to thinking about or interacting with internationals. Beloved, the ultimate, the ultimate motivation for proclaiming the gospel and for making disciples is Christ's immeasurable worth and glory. That's what compels us to spread the message of the gospel. That's what compels us to open our mouth at work and invite our boss to a church service. Jesus Christ's immeasurable worth and glory. And we're also driven by the Apostle John's heavenly vision, which Alex read for us earlier in Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Beloved, when anything about our marvelous God stirs our affections towards worship and obedience, a natural overflow ought to be a desire to see other people who don't know Jesus yet stirred to worship him as well. That's what we want. It's just natural. But this is, this is a corporate endeavor, one that involves every member of Christ's body. And so my goal today isn't to persuade anyone at New City Baptist to become missionaries to foreign lands. Your pastors want to help the members of New City to think and act with a global evangelization mindset. That's why as a church, we pray for a different country every week. Both at the Thursday evening prayer meeting and during our Sunday service during the pastoral prayer. Every week we do it. We want to cultivate a global evangelization mindset, a global missions mindset. Something else to bear in mind. Jesus' command was given to all churches. The reality is churches all around the world are to be deeply engaged in international missions. All of them. This is not an exclusively Western enterprise. All churches at all times and in all places, must endeavor together in making disciples of all nations. And our opportunity, in light of global trends, is not only to send out from our congregations in the West, but to partner with international churches in sending, supporting, and serving missionaries among the nations. And we're doing that. Right? Christ's command was to make disciples who would become churches. And any effort we make in missions ought to be connected to the goal of reproducing local bodies of believers through the declaration and demonstration of the gospel. Finally, number four, the Great Commission is bound up with Christ's continued presence. 
What I mean by that is as Christians, we speak, we bear witness out of the overflow of the consciousness of Jesus' abiding presence in our lives. Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And out of our consciousness of that, loved ones, we speak. And this is something we can experience. When we're faithful with evangelism, as we speak, as we proclaim, as we herald the gospel, we become all the more aware of the spiritual conflict that we're engaged in, don't we? Uh, of, of the rulers of darkness in high places and of the presence of Jesus Christ to help us. Christian, have you ever sensed the presence of Christ in you and with you precisely in the context of evangelism? Sometimes, in fact, when things are most difficult, it's wonderful, it's glorious. If you're a faithful evangelist, then you know some of those experiences of God's grace in your life you would not have had if you kept your mouth shut. It's sad, but I fear for many Christians, Christ's presence is essentially alien to their experience because they never bear witness to him. That's one of the questions that we ask at New City, sometimes at our prayer meetings, when's the last time that you proclaimed the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection to somebody? Has it been three weeks, three months, three years? As we feed on Christ, as we grow in our awareness of him, as we acknowledge him, as we are aware of his presence, we speak then out of the overflow of our hearts and lives of what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. And we discover that it's the context of evangelism in which again and again, Jesus manifests himself to us most tellingly, most powerfully. Beloved, be encouraged. Be encouraged by this. No matter our church's size, age, resources, the challenges we face, we are not powerless, we're not poor, we're not alone. Jesus' promise is for us today. He rules all things, earthly and heavenly, and he is with us to the very end of the age. He will complete his mission, and we're a part of that. We're a part of it. So, if it's the role of every local church to obey the Great Commission for the sake of birthing new local churches, locally and globally, then where do we begin? First, we need to make sure that our thinking on this is biblical. The Great Commission doesn't call churches to act like professional sports teams. The goal of every sports team is to win the championship, right? And so teams will try to hire the very best players, build the best training facilities, and optimize its coaching staff all to win that league's top trophy, the Stanley Cup or whatever. Sure, a team is glad that other teams exist. I mean, after all, if there were no other teams, there could be no league. But its main goal is to beat those other teams every year. Now, I doubt very many, if any, churches explicitly think of themselves. I hope not. We have to beat those other churches. But too often, a grotesque competitiveness between churches marks evangelicalism. There's a competitiveness. 
uh, uh, but a true, a true Great Commission church does not compete with other gospel preaching churches because it knows every gospel preaching church is playing for the same team. New City, we want to be an evangelizing and discipling church, but we also want to be a church planting and church revitalizing church. Yes, we want to see the kingdom of God grow through our own ministry. We pray for that. But we also want to see the kingdom expanded beyond our own walls through other churches, which is, again, why we pray for other churches around the world and here in Toronto every week. And we want to do what we can in planting or supporting other local churches. We must not just be satisfied with our own health. We want to see lots of other healthy, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching congregations. We want to encourage other evangelical churches and plants even if they're only several blocks away. We want to pray for them by name. We want to be willing to send out good folks who will help those other churches. But we also want to work to plant or build up churches on the other side of the world. We want to work and pray to raise up men qualified to be elders and then selflessly send them out to help others. We want to work to align our budget with these great commission priorities. Some money is kept for ministry in our own location, but some money is assigned to helping other works both near and far. And we want to reclaim dying congregations wherever we can. This is a pressing need in Toronto. And there's various ways to go about this, but it's something we need to be thinking about and willing to do. Lord, send me. In conclusion, God loves the world. And he has a wonderful plan for evangelism. The church. The church is where his kingdom authority is exercised. The church is where disciples are made. The church is where Jesus' followers are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's in the church where Christians are taught to obey everything Jesus commanded. Church planting is the normal business of the local church. The Great Commission is normally fulfilled through church planting. Churches are God's evangelism plan. By God's grace, may we give our lives and our church, New City, to it. Amen.